Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you that you long to hear from us, that you long to bless us. And Lord, we want that blessing. We pray that you'd speak with clarity, with conviction, and that we would see a clear case made from Scripture. This is our plea tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be addressing how God has provided a voice of reason to humanity for our benefit and edification, a voice of reason. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God spoke to man face to face. But after sin entered the world in Genesis 3, there's a separation that took place. That face-to-face communion was lost, unfortunately. And in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, we're told this, that your iniquities have separated you from your God. So there's a breakdown in communication. Now, it's not that God has no desire to communicate with us, right? We ran from Him. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, the way the narrative reads is, who runs from who in Genesis 3? Yeah, Adam and Eve, they ran from God, right? God didn't say, ooh, cooties, and run the opposite direction. They sinned, they separated themselves from God, but God desires to be with His people, but there's limitations since the fall. You see the difference? Do you? Yeah. Okay, just making sure y'all are there tonight, and it's not like holograms or something, y'all are cheating and watching from home or something. Uh, yeah, so just super, super important. God desires to be with His people. We can't lose sight of that. And we see that in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 9. He says, And let them build me a sanctuary. And why is that? So that he can dwell among us. God wants to dwell among his people still. And the sanctuary foretold how Christ would accomplish that. And we've addressed that more than once. So then we get to John chapter 1 and verse 14. And it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That same word is used there. In fact, the word used uh, in the original language is that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's actually using very similar language to Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. I think John was intentional in that. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to reveal the glorious character of God to the world while in flesh. Okay? Then we get to Matthew chapter 13. And beginning of verse 54, when he had come into his own country, speaking of Jesus, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works, right? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? They're kind of envious, right? This guy didn't go to school. How does he know this stuff? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now, Jesus is speaking of himself. He came to this world in the role of a prophet. Now, not only as a prophet, but he did come as a prophet. He served that role as well. His disciples testified this in Luke chapter 24. And he said to them, what things? This is whenever Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the discouraged disciples. Jesus has died. They think, man, the whole thing is over. Oh, man, this is terrible. And he says, well, what thing? They say, well, he says, why are you so sorrowful? And they said, don't you know about what's happened? He said, what things? And so they say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and had the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. So even the disciples identified Jesus as being a prophet. Again, he was more than that, but that was one of his roles. Then we get to Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. This is um, 
after Peter's preached another dynamite sermon. And they said, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Then it speaks of Moses. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that they're quoting from. Moses warned the people that God would send a prophet like him. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Okay, this is now commentary after quoting from Deuteronomy 18. And so the point that's being made here is all the prophets have been speaking of this prophet. Jesus is the one we all need to hear from. Okay, and... Um, this is the same prophet that the people asked John the Baptist. They came up to him and said, well, who are you? And they said, are you, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? And they're asking about this prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he says, no, I'm the voice of one in the wilderness leading people to receive the Messiah. So what is the biblical definition of a prophet? Next is chapter 4, beginning of verse 13. There's an interesting narrative between God and Moses. Uh, how many people have heard that Moses had a stuttering problem? You ever heard somebody preach that before? That's actually not true. So in Exodus chapter 4, Moses had been in Egypt for 40 years, okay? And then he left Egypt for 40 years. Now, was anyone in this room by chance born in another country and came to America? Anyone else fall in that category? Okay, and if you don't use your mother tongue once you come into America, you can kind of lose the grasp of that language as you're integrating into another culture. And this is what happened to Moses. Moses hadn't spoken the Egyptian language for 40 years. So when he says that he was slow of tongue, it wasn't that he had a stuttering problem. He was an eloquent speaker. That's all throughout the book of Exodus and throughout you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That wasn't the issue. The issue was he didn't have command of the Egyptian language to whom he was going, right? He was going to Egypt to call people out of Egypt. So that's a misnomer that sometimes people say that's not a biblical, uh, uh, biblically accurate statement to make. But anyway, he gets to Exodus chapter 4, and God says, I'm calling you to specific purposes. He says, no, you got the wrong guy, bro. Like, I am not the guy for this job. That's how I felt, being called to be a preacher. But in verse 13, he says, Oh, Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. You ever been there? God gives you a calling. Yeah, that's great. Go send anybody but me. That's what he just said. Anybody else? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And he's saying this because Aaron is still in Egypt. Does that make sense? He's still there. He still has command of the language. And so I know he can speak well, and look, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Then look at the language that's used in verse 16. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And so you shall be to him as God. God uses this kind of wordplay that Moses will almost be as if he's your prophet and you were God, okay? He will be your spokesperson. Then we get to 
Exodus chapter 7 and verse 1. This is a follow-up conversation about this situation. And it says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. Now, what was the word he used in Exodus chapter 4? Spokesperson. And in Exodus 7, he uses the word prophet. But they're saying the same thing. Do you see that? God is using these words interchangeably. So the Bible here uses the word prophet and spokesperson interchangeably. So a prophet is not this narrow picture that many of us have, that they're just a fortune teller or someone who knows the future. Their main role biblically is to speak on behalf of God. Do we see that? That's what we have here. So then we get to Luke chapter 10. Jesus says a very difficult statement. He says, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now you got to kind of follow the line of logic. He's saying when they reject you, who are they really rejecting? God, right? Me, and when they're rejecting me, they're really rejecting God who sent me. Okay, so the point he's making is when they reject you, those people that I'm sending to speak on my behalf, when they reject you, it's not really you they're rejecting, they're rejecting me. Which somewhat can bring solace to you as you're knocking on doors. Not that we're all prophets, by the way. But when you're knocking on doors or doing outreach or doing ministry, it can get kind of discouraging and difficult at times because what if people reject me? Well, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting God, which ironically should make us even more sad when you think about it because I'd rather somebody reject me than Jesus, right? But that's what he's saying here. So he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So if a prophet of God speaks, it's God speaking through them. So if we don't heed them, we're not heeding him. If we reject their message, we're actively rejecting God who sent them. So if God gives a message to a prophet and they give that message to you, you're getting a message that's hand-delivered from God himself. Does that make sense? That's the language and logic that Jesus is using in Luke 10. But then we get to Mark chapter 6 where there's an illustration of this. So in Mark chapter 6, beginning of verse 14, says, Now King Herod heard of him, Jesus, for he had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, speaking of that Deuteronomy 18 language, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. Mark 6, verse 17 now. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. He married his brother's wife. I'll let you guess whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think you're pretty good at math out there. So then in verse 18, because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Bro, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't be doing this. And so Herod beheaded John because John pointed out his sin by marrying his brother's wife. Now, according to our previous verse, who was it that was really speaking to Herod in that moment? It was God, right? God sent John with a message from God. So when they reject the prophet, they're really rejecting God who sent the prophet. Okay? So Herod rejects God by rejecting John, whom God sent. John's message didn't originate with John. It came from God. John wasn't just thinking, well, I got this role as a prophet. Now I can do whatever I want, and I can say whatever I want. That's not what he's saying here. That's not how this gift worked, right? You only spoke what God tells you to speak in those moments when your prophetic office is being called upon. But then we get to Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 8. 
Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he'd heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus. Hey, do some miracle and impress me. Show off for me, Jesus. But then he questioned him with many words, but what did Jesus say to him? He says he answered him nothing. Now, this begs a question, because was Jesus a person of tact and consideration? Of course. He was the kindest human being the world has ever known. He was one who would converse with people regularly when approached, yet here he didn't. Now, why wouldn't Jesus answer King Herod? It's because he had already spoken to him through John the Baptist. He who hears the prophet of God hears God. So what did Herod do when approached by a prophet? He killed him and in turn rejected God. And here's the point. There are many people who say they want to hear from God, but they reject Him when He speaks to them through His messengers. And so when they see Him face to face, He won't have anything to say to them either. Right? Jesus had already said what He needed to say through John the Baptist. And He silenced that messenger. You understanding? It's the circumstances that take place here. Now, there's an incorrect view that many have of prophets. We kind of have this superhero view of them, that they're like these mutants that never have any problems. They walk on water. I mean, Jesus was a prophet and did that, but most didn't. Technically, Peter was a prophet because he wrote a book of the Bible, and he technically walked on water. But anyway, that's not, that's not the case for most people. And the reality of the biblical narrative is that God uses normal people, right? God picked normal people. I think it was Amos that was a farmer, right? Like you have different people in the Bible who were simple folk. Peter was a fisherman. And so they weren't perfect. People don't realize that religion is for failed people. God used failed people to deliver his messages. Moses and Noah and David, Elijah and Paul, etc. God used normal people like you and me. And I take great consolation in that because God doesn't give this superhero view of the followers of Jesus. And I'm so thankful, right? You see their foibles, you see their failures. And then you realize, man, if Jesus could use somebody like that, then maybe he could use a bum like me. Anyone else feel that way? Like, maybe he could actually use me if he can use these guys. And that's the point. And it was no different with the prophets, beloved. They were normal people, simple people who were given a specific calling by God to be his mouthpiece, to be his spokesperson. Do we see that? Okay. And so we're told in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, Surely the Lord God does nothing. How much? Nothing. Nothing, unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So God has ordained that His ultimate method of communicating with humanity is through His prophets. So how much is God going to do without using His prophets according to this text? Nothing. So we're going to have to get comfortable with the fact that God uses humans to communicate important information to His people and to communicate what He's doing. We're just going to have to get used to that and get comfortable with that. In fact, every book that's written in the Bible, all 66 of them, at least in the English language, All 66 of these were written by common folk, human beings, and every author of the Bible was a prophet. They were given the gift of inspiration because we're told that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? So every person that wrote a book of the Bible was inspired by God as a prophet, communicating on his behalf an important message to his people. Okay? God used normal people to do that. We're told in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, and I don't change. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. 
So if God revealed his message through the prophets in the Exodus, the exile, and in the New Testament, he's going to continue to do so throughout time. His methods won't change because he doesn't. Does that make sense? Right? If he does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets, and he doesn't change, his method isn't going to change. Right? That's the point. Now, I want to look at some prophets and prophecies that we find in Scripture um, and, and, and specifically see a pattern that's found regarding time prophecies in Scripture, many of the time prophecies. Here's the first one. It's in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. Then he said to Abram, this is God speaking to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for how long? For 400 years. And also the nation whom they served, I will judge. And after that, they shall come out with great possessions. We talked about this in our presentation on the covenants. So Abram is a prophet, and this happens later with Abimelech. God says, Abraham is a prophet, and he will pray for you, because they've gone barren and so forth. He'll pray for you. So God identifies Abram as a prophet, if you, you know, have any concerns about that. So Abram is a prophet, and he receives a time prophecy from God. And how long is that time prophecy again? 400 years. Now, what does it concern? It concerns his descendants, their captivity, and their eventual deliverance. So here's just kind of a diagram of this. The captivity and the eventual deliverance of Abram's descendants is the content of the prophecy. The length of the prophecy is 400 years, and the prophet that's given the message to begin with is Abram. Okay, he'll later be called Abraham. In this moment, he's called Abram. Now, here's the interesting and fascinating thing that God does with many of these time prophecies. Look, go to Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. He's speaking to Moses. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Is anyone else grateful for this, that there's a God in heaven who's acquainted with our sorrows, who hears when we cry to him? I'm so thankful for that. And he says, so I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the Iteites, right? All the Ites. So then in verse 9, now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel again has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God is saying that he'll bring his people out of Egypt, just like he said in Genesis 15. God then raises up Moses at the end of that 400-year prophecy. But here's the important question. Does Moses' message and mission relate to Abram's prophecy? Yes or no? Yes, right? His entire message and mission, his entire life's work is centered in this situation, right? His entire calling is to do what Abram was told would happen, to deliver the people from Egypt, okay? This is called a prophecy sandwich. You have a prophet who has a prophecy. There's a time prophecy. There's a content in the middle, and there's a prophet on the end of that time prophecy whose message and mission are directly tied to the first prophet's message. Do we see that? 
Okay, remember what God said in Amos 3.7, Surely the Lord God does nothing without speaking through His servants, the prophets. So here's another diagram of this. You've got Abram who's given the prophecy, the prophecies for 400 years, and there's a prophet on the other end of that time prophecy whose message and mission is tied to the original prophet's message. Do you follow that? Okay, we're going to see this again now in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25 and verse 11. And this whole land, God speaking to Jeremiah, shall be a desolation, speaking of Israel, and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for how long? For 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I'll punish the king of Babylon okay, for their iniquity and I'll make it a perpetual desolation. So a 70-year time prophecy concerning the Israelite captivity into Babylon. Later in Jeremiah, in chapter 29 and verse 10, we're given more information about this same scenario. It's another prophecy that's still tied to the same timeline. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10, if you want to write this down, I didn't put it in the slides. Jeremiah 29 and verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you, and I'll perform my good word towards you, and cause you to return to this place. And where do you think this place is? Back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, right? They're going to go into captivity because they were unfaithful. And after 70 years, the nation that takes them into captivity will be judged, and then they'll go back. Okay, that's what's being spoken here. Very similar to the other prophecy, by the way. Um, Israel started in the land that we now call Israel. They went into Egypt, eventually became captives while they were in Egypt, and then went back to their home country. Kind of similar, somewhat trajectory here. But what does this prophecy have to do? Like, what's, what's the content of this prophecy? It has to do with the captivity and the release of the Jews and the judgment against Babylon. Okay? So Jeremiah was given the prophecy in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. It's for 70 years, and the main content of the prophecy is the captivity and the release of the Jews and the return to Jerusalem and its restoration. So if God's going to keep doing the same process he did before, we should expect to see a prophet on the other end of this whose message and mission is tied to Jeremiah's prophecies. And we have that. It's in Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is the kingdom that rules after Babylon, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that the prophecy of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. We alluded to this in our 70-week prophecy study together a while back. Verse 3, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're being told they're going to go back. Then go to Ezra chapter 5 and verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of the Ido, prophets, both of them were prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So the temple that was destroyed 70 years earlier needs to be rebuilt so that the word through the prophet Jeremiah could be fulfilled. And so God raises up Haggai and Zechariah the prophets around the end of Jeremiah's prophecy to encourage them and help them in carrying forward in this. So here's the question. 
Does their message and mission have a connection to the prophecy that was given to Jeremiah? What do you think? Absolutely. Okay, so Haggai and Zechariah, their prophecy or their message and mission is directly tied to this prophecy, the captivity and release of the Jews, their return to Jerusalem and its restoration. And they got it from Jeremiah in the length of 70 years, a prophecy sandwich. You got a prophet and a prophet, and in between of them is that time prophecy. Okay, we see another one here in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. We read this one before earlier, also in the 70 weeks. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. We talked about this before. They had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, right? Building through troublesome times. So this time frame begins when, according to this verse? When does the time prophecy begin? underlined to make it easier for your viewing pleasure. From the, from the decree, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It starts there, right? From this date until Messiah the Prince. Okay, and how long is this time prophecy according to the text? Yeah, seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks, right? Or 483 prophetic years. Who's given this prophecy? Uh, there's a person. Who's the prophet? Daniel, right? And so it's concerning the coming of the Messiah and his anointing. Okay? So Daniel's given the prophecy. It's for 483 literal years, and it's about the coming of the Messiah and his anointing. So here's the question. Is there a prophet that rises up at the end of this prophecy whose message and mission relates to this prophecy? What do you think? Who is it? John the Baptist. Right, so we get to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. That's quoting Isaiah 40, I believe. Who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then we get to verse 14. After Jesus is baptized, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what was the first thing he preached right after his baptism? The time was fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So who was the prophet on the other end of this thing? It's John the Baptist. Jesus says, after John is put in prison, the time is fulfilled. He knows that because Jesus knew the prophecies. That's why Jesus knew that he would die. And his whole life was planned out before he came based upon what the scriptures prophesied would happen. And we'll look at some of those Saturday night. God raised up John at the end of that time prophecy. So did his his mission and message relate to Daniel's prophecy? Yes or no? Yes. Surely God does nothing without revealing his secrets through his servants, the prophets. So from Genesis to Jesus, we see the same pattern. God is working in a predictable pattern so that people won't be left out. Jesus does everything in his power to guide us. I'm so thankful for that. That voice of reason preparing us for important events that are to come. You see that? God raises up prophets to warn us of events that are in the future. And then he raises up prophets to let us know, hey, that time is now. In case you missed it. In case you hit the snooze button, now's the time to pay attention because something important has just happened or is about to happen. Does that make sense? 
Okay, we're going to see one more of these. So here's another chart. Daniel's given the prophecy. It's 483 years. John's the prophet on the other end of that, and his message and mission was according to the message of the prophecy, the coming of the Messiah and his anointing, right? His anointing was what? Do you remember what that event was? It was his baptism, right? And who baptized Jesus? John the Baptist, okay? So he's directly tied to all of this, okay? So we'll do one more. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, we've read this verse before. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So who's the prophet here? Daniel. The prophet receives a time prophecy. And how long is it? Yeah, 2,300 days or literal years, right? Using prophetic time. What is it concerned? What's it about? The cleansing of the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary. We talked about that in a previous message. So Daniel, knowing the history of the Day of Atonement and the language being used here, he knew that at the end of the 2300 years, there would be a judgment. Okay, he's given a time prophecy, right? He knows some judgment's happening. So if God's going to be consistent with himself, what should we expect to see at the end of this time prophecy? Another prophet. And when that prophet comes, should their mission and message relate to the prophecy that Daniel's given? Yes. It has to, right? If God's going to be consistent with himself. So you've got Daniel. He's given a 2,300-year prophecy concerning the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and a judgment that's to take place. So we should be looking for a prophet at the end of that time prophecy. And here's a really, really fascinating moment in earth's history. Because all of these people show up at the close of that timeline. All around that time, general time frame, within 30 to 50 years of that time frame, here's all of what happens. Okay? In 1820, Joseph Smith is given his first vision, and he founds the Mormon Church. In 1826 through 1910, Andrew Jackson Davis was alive. He started the American spiritualist movement, a lot of spiritualism that came through that process. In 1844, Ellen White's first vision was given as uh, a, the Seventh-day Adventist Church didn't even exist yet. It would eventually become the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In 1852 to 1916 is the lifespan of Charles Russell Taze. He was a founder of the Watchtower Society, which we know today as the Jehovah's Witnesses. From 1821 to 1910, Mary Baker Eddy was around, who founded the Christian Science Movement. 1877 to 1945, we have Edgar Cayce, who was known as the Sleeping Prophet. Many people thought maybe he had the prophetic gift during that span of his life. Another very interesting thing is in 1844, that's the year that the first manuscript of Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, which is kind of this crowning, quote-unquote, scientific work regarding evolution. That was in 1844. Did anything significant happen in 1844? A big significant event, right? We talked about that before. The 2300-year prophecy ends in 1844. From 1818 to 1845, Karl Marx is around and he's spreading his worldview, right? That eventually led to communism and other uh, socialist views. Then we get to 1856 to 1939, and Sigmund Freud is alive, and his worldview spreads. He's the godfather of most modern-day psychology, right? Many of which has a very different view of the Bible, right? On the, on the human workings of the brain and what's for the flourishing of humanity. Isn't this troubling to you? This is very troubling to me. 
that the very time that we should be expecting a prophet whose message and mission is directly tied to Daniel's prophecy about the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, there's a judgment happening, preparing people to be ready to serve God, and all of this confusion and heresy and, and painful and dangerous worldviews come on the scene. Do you see that? And it reminds me of something. I don't have this in my slides, but it's in Revelation chapter 12, I believe. Uh, if you want to look it up or write down this, uh, this reference in your notes. In Revelation chapter 12, and see if I can find this here quickly. Ah, man. Uh, Here we go. Revelation 12 and verse 15. So Revelation 12 is very fascinating because it tells the story of the remnant church, right? The church goes into hiding, and then eventually after the 1260 years of persecution, the church comes out of hiding, and the remnant church comes on the scene. But one of the things the devil does to try to destroy the woman in verse 15 of Revelation 12, it says, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Right? And I think that what happens here in the mid-1800s is an example of this. He's spewing people in confusion to try to deter God's church when it's starting to raise up when the world needs it the most. To announce to the world that a judgment is happening in heaven right now and things are changing. Right? The earth's history is beginning to be wrapped up rapidly. And I, just, I, I think this cannot be overlooked. I hope, are you guys seeing the significance of this? that all these thought leaders show up at the very time that God is raising up a prophet. So um, all these people show up, some claiming divine gifts or prophetic gifts, others aren't, but they show up in the general time frame of when this last prophecy of the Bible finds its fulfillment. It's almost as if Satan wanted there to be confusion at the time when God was sending a voice of reason to his people when they needed it most. Super important. So do you think the devil had any concern about what was happening in 1844? You think it was important to him? You better believe it. You know how many people have been steered away from the truth of God because of the worldviews on this list behind us for many of them? And so at the time that God's calling people to believe the everlasting gospel, to worship God in His holy Sabbath and honor creation, and to see their individual worth and the value in that lens of the creation of the Sabbath, to open the world's eyes to the fact that a judgment has begun in the heavenly sanctuary, and to separate from all Babylonian worldviews, and to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's the three angels' messages. At that very time when this is coming to the fore, there's this confusion. There's this attack. Right? The whole cornerstone teaching of, of evolution is you don't matter. Who cares? You came from monkeys, you'll return to compost, and your life has no significance in this world. The Sabbath flies in the face of that and says, absolutely not. You are precious. You were handcrafted by a God of love, and every seven days you're reminded of the fact that you're important, you matter, and someone wants you. Do you see this budding of heads is happening in the year 1844? It's a big deal, guys. Only one person on this list, though, specifically had a mission and a message that was directly tied to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 8 and verse 14. And their first prophetic vision came in December of 1844, the very time we should be looking for a prophet, and that's Ella White with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
And I think that's very, very significant. Okay? So we have Daniel and then Ella White on the other end of that prophecy. Her message and mission is directly tied to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the judgment taking place in heaven. No one on this list says that. No one on this list has that view except for her on that topic. Now, some of you may be asking, how do we even know if there can be a prophet after the Bible? We're going to get to that in a moment. We're just laying out the prophetic history first, okay? So, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this. He's speaking of the spiritual gifts that will be found in the church. In Ephesians 4:11, he said uh, that God himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Here's why he gave them these gifts. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till... Now, what does the word till mean? Until, right? Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Now, when are we going to be fully in the fullness of Christ? Yeah, the resurrection at the second coming. So Paul here is saying that these spiritual gifts are going to exist until the second coming of Jesus. And one of those spiritual gifts is prophecy. And he gave it for the uplifting, for the upbuilding of the church to edify the saints, right? To empower them and set them up for ministry. Okay. He continues in verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So another role of the prophets, right, of the spiritual gifts, but one of them being prophecy, is to ensure that people aren't led astray by terrible doctrines. Do you see that? That's, that's the same context. It's the next verse. So the Apostle Paul here is saying that one of the spiritual gifts that's going to continue until the second coming is the gift of prophecy. Interestingly enough, All three listings in the New Testament that communicate the spiritual gifts list prophecy as a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. All three of them have prophecy listed in the spiritual gifts. Okay? And here in verse 14, again, it's it's given to protect people, the prophetic gift and other spiritual gifts, from being carried away by every wind of doctrine. And it's very interesting that the time when God prophesied that he would give this gift in 1844 is a time when all kinds of strained doctrines and worldviews are coming forth to society. Evolution, Marxism, Freudianism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, spiritualism, and so forth. That is not a coincidence, beloved. That is not a coincidence. And everything we've shared with you each night is shared straight from Scripture. All we've been quoting is a Bible every night. We're in night, what, 17? 16, 17? Every night we've been going from the Bible, right? This isn't a Bible the Seventh-day Adventist wrote. This is a New King James Bible you can find anywhere, right? This is what we've been teaching every week, and it's all pointing to the same thing. Then we get to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, okay? And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That's that remnant idea again. And here's what it says about them. They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Pop quiz, y'all. We gave two definitions of the testimony of Jesus in a previous meeting together. I believe it was on Remnant Church. What were the two definitions that we gave of the testimony of Jesus? Anybody know? The spirit of prophecy. Nope. The faith of Jesus. Nope. Uh, kinda. 
So Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. This is John chapter 5, I believe, maybe 39, but I'm not that good. So it's John 5, I think. And he says, and these are they which testify of me. And what were those scriptures he was talking about at that stage? The Old Testament. So one of the things that's a testimony of Jesus, right, the remnant church will uplift the validity and the practicality and the usefulness of the Old Testament for New Testament Christians. That was the first definition of the testimony of Jesus. What was the second one? It's a little easier. They testify of Jesus, right? They uplift Jesus and his lovely character before the world. Those are the two definitions we gave. There's a third one, though, and we'll see that here in just a moment. Okay? There's a third definition that God gives to his church at the end of time, and it's found in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. John falls at the feet of one of the, uh, the angels that he's seeing in vision to worship them. And they say to him, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who had the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay? So it says in Revelation 12, 17, that the remnant church will have the testimony of Jesus. So they'll uplift the principles of the Old Testament. It's still relevant. If it was relevant for Jesus or relevant for Paul, I assume it's probably relevant for me. They're also going to uplift Jesus, but we also will see the manifestation of the gift of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy. That's what the Bible says here, okay? So let's look at some prophetic gift tests that we see in the Bible. What does the Bible say about how to test whether someone really is a prophet or whether they're not a prophet? Because the Bible does give us those. Here's the first in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. It says, to the law and the testimony. Now, what are they speaking of here? The law and the testimony. What do you think those two things are? The Ten Commandments, so that's the law. What's the testimony? That's all the prophets who were pointing people back to the law, right? The basic layout of the Old Testament is you had the foundation of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? That was the foundation of the Old Testament. Those were the writings of Moses. All of the prophets that came after that were largely pointing back to counsel that was already given them by Moses to point them back to the writings, right? To the Mosaic writings. So to the law and the testimony, basically the whole Old Testament, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. So if they aren't speaking according to the law and the writings of Moses and the testimony, the prophetic writings, there's no light in them. Okay? So biblical fidelity is essential for the testing of a true prophet. You see that? That's the first characteristic, biblical fidelity. Okay? Then we get to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 1 says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So notice the Bible's not placing a high emphasis on prediction for the prophetic gift. Do you notice that? Yes. First of all, the definition of a prophet biblically is a... Spokesperson. We covered that earlier. Now, there are instances where they have prophetic utterances. We covered some of those already tonight. But in this circumstance, God says, hey, just because they, they say that something will happen and it does, doesn't mean that they're a true prophet of God. Do you see that? He says, because if in the same breath, they then tell you to do things contrary to the Ten Commandments, right? Because they're saying worship other gods and it's a violation of the Ten Commandments. Don't follow them, right? So commandment keeping is also essential. Do you see that? 
Commandment keeping is also essential. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that a prophet is infallible. Again, David, Peter, Moses, Noah, Paul, and others had failings and mistakes, right? They all made mistakes, but their message and mission will be pointing to biblical fidelity, commandment keeping, and the other characteristics we'll address next. Does that make sense? Their message and missions will point to that, right? God's using humans and humans make mistakes, but their message and mission will point to biblical fidelity, commandment keeping, and the next two characteristics. Now we get to Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Okay? So when they do share about future events and those things come to pass, you'll know that this person was legit. Now the stipulation on this is if circumstances change around that prophecy. Because this happened in the Bible multiple times. You got the circumstance of Jonah telling the Ninevites, this whole place is going down, God's going to judge this place. But the amazing thing is he had the most successful evangelistic campaign ever, 100% conversion. Literally everybody repents of their sins, the king and all the citizens. And God says, if they're going to respond like this, let's not do that. God, there was a conditional aspect to that prophecy that they responded. Now, they didn't know that, but they adhered to it by repenting. Do you see that? It happens again. Pastor just preached about it this weekend on the topic of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, uh, Isaiah was sent in to tell him, you're going to die. Put your house in order. But then he turns his face towards the wall and he weeps bitterly. And before Isaiah even gets off of the, the royal grounds, God tells him, you go back in there and you tell the king, you're going to get 15 more years of life. Now, God's not being haphazard here or arbitrary, right? When people respond or other circumstances change, the prophecy itself may change. There's plenty of biblical examples of that. Does that make sense? So that can happen. We can't say 100% everything a prophet says, it's always going to go down that way because there could be circumstances tied to that that change, right? That happened throughout scripture. So accuracy is another key point though, okay? Then we get to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Jesus says to beware of what kind of prophets? So he doesn't say beware of all prophets. Do you see that? Because if we weren't to be expecting prophets, because he's speaking to disciples who are going to keep leaving the church after he dies, and he's given this counsel not just for them, but for you and me. And he doesn't say, beware of anyone who claims to be a prophet because there will be no more prophets after me or after you guys. He doesn't say that. He says, beware of false prophets, which is why we have tests in the Bible to weigh out whether someone is a true prophet or not. Does that make sense? Okay. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So notice here that Jesus says to beware of false prophets. Okay. So, you're going to know them by their fruit is another place where Jesus makes this statement. So what type of fruit did their ministry produce? That's an important question, right? Does their ministry produce crazy people and kooks, right? Or does it produce people who are gospel-loving, practical, Christ-centered Christians who just want to believe the scriptures and follow what the scriptures say, come what may? So in Ella White's case, the question to ask is, was she faithful? Did she teach commandment keeping? Was there accuracy in what she said? And what did her ministry produce in those who believed her writings? Does that make sense? What fruit was born from that? So again, those four biblical tests that we have, biblical fidelity, commandment keeping, there's accuracy in what they say, and they bear good fruit. So we'll close with just a brief A few examples of the fruit of her ministry, things that she prophesied and said would happen. Here we go. 
1905, she said that cancer is a germ or a virus, which medical science began to endorse only in the 1950s. Okay, she was 45 years ahead of her time. Dr. Wendell Stanley at the University of California, he's a virologist and Nobel Prize winner, went so far as to state without qualification that he believes that viruses cause most of all human cancer. But when she said this, it sounded crazy, right? But once science caught up with the, the words that she was given, it came to pass, okay? It, it, it panned out. In 1864, she wrote, the tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. Now, the word malignant is associated with something. What is that? cancer. It wasn't until 1957, nearly 90 years later, in fact, it was 93 years later, that the American Heart Association finally concluded that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. People used to smoke on airplanes. Can you imagine? People smoked on airplanes and doctors used to prescribe smoking. They didn't understand that this was harmful right at one point in time. So when she said it, she sounded crazy until science caught up with the prophetic word. Do you see that? Okay, this happens multiple times. Paul Harvey loved Ellen White. He loved her writings. He wasn't an Avenist, by the way, um, but he loved her writings, found them to be very edifying. And he says in 1969, in March of 1969, he says, have you ever wondered if health care is worth it? The consensus of most modern medical men is that you should exercise, keep your weight down, and avoid smoking cigarettes. An increasing number of physicians are recommending against alcohol, high cholesterol meats, and white flour bread. These recommendations are based upon the quote-unquote latest medical knowledge. Though I can show you the same prescription for health in a book that's 100 years old. Who wrote that book? Ellen White, he says. To this day, Seventh-day Adventists accept her criteria. It is tended to reaffirm the faith of the faithful to discover that the most advanced scientific findings support what was written and taught by this amazing little lady, Ellen White, more than a hundred years ago. Yet modern science continues more and more to say, what do they say? She was right. She was right. <laughs> and it wasn't her, because she's not the one speaking when these writings are given to her, right? Who's actually speaking? God. If it's following the biblical process, that's who's actually speaking. So it's not that she's awesome. She wouldn't even claim that. There's another place where he has this very interesting statement. He says, um, Paul Harvey, he says, something, something, something about Ella White. Ella White, you don't know her? Get to know her, he says. He talked about her more than once on his radio program. So this is T. Colin Campbell. Has anyone ever read the book, The China Study, or heard of the book, The China Study? So T. Colin Campbell wrote this book. He was doing research on protein, what was kind of important for people with the ingestion of protein. And through his research, he realized animal protein is not only not necessary, it's actually harmful and dangerous. And so some people think, well, we have to eat meat to get protein. But if you weren't aware of this, animals don't create protein. Animals get their protein from vegetables and from the things of the earth. And then we get the protein secondhand from the animals. So why not just bypass all that messy, gory process that clogs your arteries and causes cancer and other difficulties and just go straight to the source? Eat the broccoli, eat, not, don't eat grass, but eat your leafy greens, right? Go to your legumes and so forth, right? So animals don't produce protein. They're getting it secondhand from what's fed to them. So we can just get it directly from the source. So when T. Colin Campbell did a bunch of research on this, he was part of the people that were involved in a video maybe you've seen before called Forks Over Knives. Anyone seen that? Forks Over Knives? He was involved in that. So this is what he says. He's a professor emeritus at nutritional, of nutritional biochemistry at Cornell University. 
and he wrote the book, The China Study. He says, I'm not aware of anyone who was more on point than Ellen White. He's not an Avenist. He says, I'm convinced that almost 100% of her statements are now substantially supported by the scientific evidence that's been developed during the past two to three decades. Now, did she write those things in the past two to three decades? No, she wrote them 100 years ago. In the mid-1860s, I think it's whenever some of the health divisions began. Somewhere around the mid-1850s or 60s was later. So this is 150 years ago that she was writing these things. This is from Dr. Florence Stratemeyer, professor of education at Columbia University. Someone gave her the book Education by Ellen White on the counsel that Ellen White was given regarding education. She says this, Recently, the book Education by Ellen G. White has been brought to my attention. Written at the turn of the century, 1903, this volume was more than 50 years ahead of its time. Now, it's not because Ellen White was awesome. It's just because God already knows what's best for us. Are you with me? And because God knows what's best for us, He provides a voice of reason to empower us to succeed at life. That's why the prophetic message was given, to empower people to succeed at life, to know what God wants, to know what's in your best interest, and how to flourish. That's why He does it. So the only reason He would raise up someone like her or anyone that has a prophetic gift is to bless, encourage, and prepare humanity for their responsibilities before God. Does that make sense? And God in His mercy provides that voice of reason. All right, listen to what she says. Um, This is in 1900, in a time when no one ever envisioned Protestants having anything to do with Catholics, especially in political unions. Right? In 1900, this was absolutely not going to happen. But she says this, The Protestants of the United States will be foremost. This is in that book, Great Controversy, or When Freedom Dies. Is that what it's called, Marina? The History of Freedom, right? That book you were given a few nights ago, that's also called The Great Controversy. It's just a different title for it. It's the same book. You guys have this book, and I would strongly encourage you to read it. It's a blessing. This is what she says in there. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, This country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. We've already seen this with the Patriot Act, and we've already seen this with COVID stuff. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't wear a tinfoil hat, and I don't spend my life on YouTube wormholes. That's not my life, okay? But we've seen that. We have given up many freedoms of conscience for the sake of, quote-unquote, the public good. And you may agree with those, and that's fine. The point is, our right of conscience was directly impacted by the government. You know that, right? Okay, and this is, just, this is just the beginning. Okay, then we get uh, to another place. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, this is referred to as ecumenism. You ever heard of ecumenism or the ecumenical movement? It's basically a movement that's stirring and, it, and it's roaring right now, where churches are finding reasons to say, you know what, we basically believe the same things. Yeah, we got quote unquote doctrinal differences, but let's just get together and work together. Okay? And it sounds good on the surface, but the problem is if your means of unity is at the expense of actual Bible truth and is even contrary to Bible truth, that's a problem. Amen? Amen. The entire kingdom bowed on their faces before a golden statue in Daniel 3. That's a problem. Just because everybody's doing it for the sake of unity does not mean that you need to do it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood that. If it's everyone's doing it, or standing for God, we're going to stand for God. 
This is the danger of the ecumenical movement, right? If we're finding ways to work with other churches to make a positive difference is one thing. But when you have to abandon truth and support others who are destroying truth, that's a whole other story. We can't, we can't go along with that. Okay? So she says, when they unite upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, they shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions. Sustain their institutions. Then Protestant America will have formed an image of the Roman hierarchy, and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. By the way, there are many people on the quote-unquote religious right who are clamoring with politicians to do these very things. It's been going on for a long time. Franklin Graham and other people have been really pushing for this, right? Trying to have the church and the state in one lockstep pushing for things through the government for the reforms and the morality of America. But when you trample on people's conscience while striving for quote-unquote morality, it doesn't work. It always leads to persecution. And that's what she's saying here. Then she says, Protestants little know that they're doing what they are doing when they propose to accept the aid of Rome in the work of Sunday exaltation. While they're bent upon the accomplishment of their purpose, Rome is aiming to reestablish her power, to recover her lost supremacy. Let the principles once be established in the United States, that the church may employ or control the power of the state, that religious observances may be enforced by secular laws. In short, that the authority of the church and state is to dominate the conscience, and the triumph of Rome in this country is assured, she says. And when she wrote this in 1900, it sounds insane because Protestants would have nothing to do with Catholics, especially in a uh, political realm, let alone in religious realms, right? That just was not happening. This was oil and water in 1900. But the interesting thing is when you get to the year 1999, right, um, there was a, there was a, there's a chapter in the Great Controversy that's called the Protest of the Princes. And there were basically princes or rulers in Germany with Martin Luther who wrote a letter of protest, protesting the authority of Rome, separating themselves and saying, this far and no further, we're not okay with what's going on here. Okay, it was called the, uh, it was signed in Augsburg, Germany. It was called the Oxford Confession. If you'd like to Google it, do some research on it. Okay, this has gone on. This is kind of in the aftermath of the 95 Theses. Okay, where the church listed out their, their protests of Catholicism and its traditions above Scripture. So it was signed in Augsburg, Germany. Martin Luther helped to draft it. They protested, and that's where the name Protestant comes from, from this scenario. But then you get to October 31st, 1999. Now, that's a significant date, because October 31st is the date that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. And so it's the anniversary of the 95 Theses, and on that date, Catholics and Lutherans came together to agree on the joint annulment of the Oxford Confession. They said there is no more Protestants, there is no more uh, protest on our behalf. It was all a big misunderstanding. Okay, this is what was done in 1999, October 31st. It's history now, right? This is a total fulfillment of prophecy. The Lutheran Church said the Protestant Reformation was just a big misunderstanding. We actually believe the same things. We don't, but that's what they said. But here's the interesting and concerning thing. Who moved the goalpost? Catholicism or Lutheranism? Lutheranism. Catholicism hasn't changed their position. Lutheranism has changed their position. Soon afterward, the Methodist Church signed a very similar agreement, and the Anglicans have done so. Many other churches are now coming back to the mother church and stating, 
We believe the same things. We want to work together. And this is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, beloved. And the stuff that Ellen White said in 1900 sounded insane. And it even sounded insane in 1960 when John F. Kennedy was elected president. And so in 1960, John F. Kennedy went from the Washington, D.C. area down to Texas to speak to a group of Baptist ministers. And this is, this is, this is all documented. He went down to, te- to speak to a group of Baptist ministers to tell them, and Protestant ministers, I'm not going to obey the authority of the Pope. I'm not going to do that. As president of the United States, I'm not going to do that. In the 60s, this was still a great matter of concern. But the ironic and, and scary thing is, 40 years later in 2001, this is a direct quote from Robert George, a political commentator. This is from an article in the Washington Post from 2001. I can get you the article if you'd like it. Uh, where This is the quote, direct quote from this guy. Well, basically what he's saying is George Bush was really trying to court the Catholic vote. The Catholic vote had largely gone Democratic for years, with a minor exception for Ronald Reagan. And George Bush was able to marshal many of them. He started using Catholic language. that was uh, similar language that the popes would use in their public addresses in his speeches. He was doing whatever he could to court and grow the Catholic vote in the Republican Party. And it worked. It did work. He got more votes that way. But in 2001, George Bush goes from Texas to Washington, D.C. to a delegation of popes, or not of popes, but of bishops and cardinals, telling them that he would respond to the Catholic Church. So look at the irony here. In 1960, John Kennedy went from Washington down to Texas to assure Protestant preachers that he would not obey the Pope. But in 2001, George Bush came from Texas up to Washington to assure a group of Catholic bishops that he would. These are not my words. This is not a Seventh-day Adventist that's saying these words. These are the words of a political commentator reading the tea leaves of what was happening. That's how much things changed in 40 years from 1960 let alone what happened in 2015 at the United Nations and addressing the joint houses of Congress. Do you understand that this is, this all seemed crazy when she said it, but it's all coming to life before our very eyes, right? That's what's happening. This has been a consistent theme in her ministry, by the way. Things sound crazy at the time that she says it, and then over time, science and other entities continue to show that she was right. And the exact same thing can be said about the biblical prophets. They ran into the same problem. They said stuff that seemed crazy, and then it happened. Okay? It seemed crazy until it didn't seem crazy, right? They just chose to be faithful to God and what He had said and let the consequences fall where they may. I'll close with this. This is from an Andrews University study. That's the flagship seminary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the Andrews University, they did a study of Seventh-day Adventists, and they basically wanted to look at people who didn't read Ellen White's writings that were Adventists and people who did. And what was the difference in their spiritual experience? Okay, we're talking about what type of fruit does their ministry produce? Here's what they said. Those who didn't read Ella White's books regularly and those who did. Those who did read, readers of her writings, have a closer relationship with Jesus. They have more certainty of their standing with God. They have more assurance of salvation. They're more likely to have identified their spiritual gifts. They are more in favor of spending for public evangelism, and they contribute more heavily to missionary projects. They feel more prepared for witnessing and actually engage in more witnessing and outreach programs than those who don't read Ellen White's writings. They're more likely to study the Bible daily, to pray for specific people, to meet in fellowship groups, and to have daily family worship. By the way, no one mandates in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that someone has to read Ellen White's writings, just to be clear. 
It's just that they're available to the church. She was one of the founders of the church. And people who voluntarily choose to read her writings, this is the fruit. And those who voluntarily choose not to write them or not to read them, they did not have as high a scores as these people did. Okay? They see their church more positively, those who read Ellen White's writings, and they're more responsible for winning converts. So this study also stated that 82% of the readers usually or always have daily personal Bible study, while 40%, 47% of those who don't read her writings said the same. Literally, so some people say, well, I don't need to read Ellen White's writings because I have the Bible. And the Bible's a blessing. No one's saying it isn't. We've been only preaching from the Bible, not Ellen White every meeting. You've seen that. But the point is to say that you don't need to read her writings because you won't gain a benefit is what's implied. The stats don't show that. In fact, those who read Ellen White's writings read the Bible more than people who don't read her writings, which tells you something, doesn't it? It shows you something of the fruit because she was always pointing people to Scripture, not to her. It's not about me. I'm the little light pointing to the greater light. Are you with me? She was always pointing people to Scripture. In fact, in the last speech she gave before the church in any public fashion, she got up to the lectern, she picked up her Bible and said, Brethren, I commend to you this book. And she sat down and that was it. That's the last thing she said. She was always pointing people to Scripture and to Jesus. In fact, her neighbors, uh, after she passed away, referred to her as this woman who always spoke so lovingly about Jesus. I wish that could be said of me, apart from the woman part, when I die. Amen? Someone who spoke so lovingly of Jesus. So here's the point. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, this is Paul. He says, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, and then hold fast that which is good. Okay? So the prophet Paul has asked us today to not despise prophecies. The prophet Paul has asked us today to test all things, to hold on to that which is good. So the question is, would you be willing to test and see if these things are true with the writings of Ellen G. White? That's all we're asking. We're not demanding anyone believe or any of that. Would you just taste and see for yourselves whether this points you closer to Jesus, whether this enriches your relationship with Jesus and gives you a greater hunger and thirst for a knowledge and an experience with Scripture? That's the invitation that we're giving. So as we have our appeal this evening... Number one, for your card, in fact, I'll just skip ahead to this here, for your card. Number one, I understand that the Bible teaches the continuation of the prophetic gift until the second coming. Based upon Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, and other things that we've shared, if you see that, you can check box number one. I understand that the Bible teaches the continuation of the prophetic gift. This isn't even about Ellen White. You just see that the Bible teaches the plausibility and the assumption that the prophetic gift will continue until the second coming of Jesus. Number two, I understand the tests of a true prophet from Scripture. They will be faithful. They'll teach commandment keeping. There will be fruit in their writings, and uh, there's accuracy in what they say. I see those from Scripture. Check that box for number two. Then number three, I'm open to testing Ellen White's writings to see if they line up with the tests in Scripture to just taste and see for myself. In fact, you've been given two books in these meetings that were written by her. The first was called Peace Above the Storm on our first night together, and the second was called The History of Freedom, right, which is a great controversy. The other one, Steps to Christ, right, the book Steps to Christ. So both of those books are a blessing. I would encourage you to read them and just say, God, if this really is of you, would you allow this to speak to me? Would you show me and speak to me about your character, about your desire for me and my Christian growth? Would you speak to me about what the Bible has to say? 
and just give it a chance, right? If you think you're willing to take that test, check box number three, okay? I'm willing to taste and see for myself whether these writings do indeed draw me closer to Jesus, whether they uplift the scriptures, and whether they're a benefit for my Christian growth, okay? Number four, I want to give my life to Jesus. And number five, I have a question or a prayer request, and you can write those on the back or in the lines or at the bottom of your card, okay? Let me ask this last question this evening. Has this made sense, yes or no? Yes. Yeah? That God's intention in giving a voice of reason to humanity is to bless us, to prepare us for the things that are to come, to set us up to succeed in the things of life. Our health, our education, our spirituality, right? Our overall happiness. That's why God provides that voice of reason. And the only reason he would give the prophetic gift is for the blessing and uplifting of the church. That's what Ephesians 4 says, and I believe it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for blessing us, for giving us uh, some things to think about and to pray over. And I pray as, as we take a chance to read through the writings of Ellen White, that we would see that this is not about someone versus the Bible. It's someone uplifting the Bible. And I thank you for the enriching ministry that it has given me. It's made me a better minister. It's made me a better man of God. And it's made me fall more in love with you than I was before I read those writings. And only you could do something like that. Uh, certainly the devil would not be making converts to Jesus. He needs to get a new prophet, uh, a new prophet if that's the case. If, he's, if this is a false prophet, this one's winning too many people to Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that you would indeed bless people as they give a chance for you to speak to them through the prophetic gift that we believe was manifested by Ellen White. And regardless, I just pray that you would bless our spiritual experience with you, that you would draw us closer to you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.